As we have read the Gospels together this year following the 20 and 23 plan, perhaps you came across an uncomfortable question from Jesus in Luke 18 when he asks, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Well, it's a question that Jeff Grinnell says should bother us. Now, this youth leader with nearly four decades spent working with teenagers is really concerned about the decreasing number of faithful followers of Jesus in the next generation. Now, our guest this morning is the author of Next Gen Faith. Jeff, welcome to the conversation. So excited to do this. So, uh, you know, one thing that we always do here on MyBridge Radio in the morning conversation, when we have a new guest on, we like to first get to know them as a brother in Christ, and then we'll get to know you as an author and a pastor passionate uh, investor in youth. So, but just kind of a thumbnail sketch. We'd love to kind of hear the Reader's Digest version, so to speak, of your uh, faith journey, how you came to know and love Jesus. Pretty much raised in the church by uh, great parents and uh, great family, man, involved in youth ministry, right? That that whole life. And then uh, mid-high school, just decided that's not what I wanted. And like too many of our young people, was not really grounded in the faith. Uh, I was grounded in the family, like the family of the youth ministry and the family of the church, right? But my gosh, I I just feel like that it's got to become more than just, you know, attendance and uh, family. It's got to become our own faith. It can't be my mom and dad's faith. It can't be my grandma or my grandfather's faith. It can't even be my youth leader's faith. At some point, this has to be mine. So uh, that didn't happen for me. And my sophomore and junior year, I I mean, I ran away from home, drugs, alcohol, everything that came with it, threw away a great opportunity for uh, athletics. You know, you hear those stories all the time. And I was being recruited for basketball, had been to Adidas five-star camp. This is 1979, 80, the the Adidas five-star camp in the Midwest was it. And mm. I was one of the top 36 players in the Midwest in basketball and, but threw it away. Absolutely threw it away. My life was messed up and it took me a Saturday night in May of 1980 at a party for God to change my life. God interrupted me at a party. Like it wasn't at convention this time. It wasn't at camp. It wasn't in, in a church service. I'm sitting at a table, rolling another joint, uh, had finished a fifth of peppermint schnapps. I was going on another one and God interrupted me. And I got my ball hat on and I'm, I'm at, around a kitchen table with friends. And there's probably 60 or 70 kids at the house. Parents were gone and it was just a party. My life changed that night. The Holy Spirit began to convict me on how I was living. I went to church that next morning made a profession of my faith publicly, and I've never been the same. You know, Jeff, one of the things I love about uh, your story that, once again, illustrates the thing that uh, we know, those of us who've come to know Jesus in real way, that it's not about a religion, it's about a relationship, right? It's not about things that you do or don't do, it's about who you become when the reality of faith ignites in your heart and the God of the universe comes to dwell within you. And you and he begins to change you from the inside out. You I mean you sat in church, you heard the messages, you even probably intellectually believed in them per se for quite a while, right? But your life wasn't transformed. You weren't changed, right? It wasn't until you came to authentic faith yourself and that uh, this whole transformation took place. That's it. No, that, I completely agree. Uh, our listeners will find when they read the book, the opening illustration it talks just about that. That. One of the most important things, I think, for this generation 
is is not just to hear hear the stories to hear about god um not even to watch the videos about god <laughs> hmm. i used the illustration book about the grand canyon and i had heard about the grand canyon all of my life i'd heard the stories i'd seen my friends pictures of their vacation you watch a movie it, you know and it's got the grand canyon in it there's so many so many things it, uh that we hear about one of the one of the uh, seven wonders of the world right but until you stand on the rim of the grand canyon you haven't seen it and i think that is a perfect illustration of this generation who has heard all about god they've heard the stories well r- really that's a jump too because uh this generation needs to be reintroduced to jesus not you, you know <laughs> but uh they it's not just that as you said stand the intellectual knowledge um, it's that relationship. And until you've been on the edge of the rim, you've never seen the Grand Canyon. Jeff, you know, writing is a labor of love. It takes an investment of your soul and a lot of time. And uh, so you've done that again here with writing your latest book, Next Gen Faith. So what was it that was in you? What was God doing in your heart? The Barnard Research Group, 2019, two and a half years ago, research came out and it found that through the generations was this plummeting loss of the biblical worldview. And as I began to see that and read other research, the faith handoff from, let's just say the silent generation, the grandparents, all the way down to Gen Z teenagers. So so that four generation, uh, let's just include those four, from the grandparents to Gen Z. And what we found was the biblical worldview dropped from 65% of the grandparents down to 4% of their grandchildren. Wow. I called a friend of mine at Barna and I'm like, listen, there's no, there is no way. And I knew they wouldn't publish it, right? This is a reputable research organization. And then everybody else started coming out with it and their numbers were a little different, but like, here, here's another look at why I wrote the book real quick. 84% of that silent generation called themselves Christian. Well, now only 31% of Gen Z do. So you have this massive drop in the uh, faith handoff from one generation to the next. And I, I wasn't just reading that stat. Uh, for you know your MyBridge listeners, Stan, I-, I am, as we said, I am heavily involved in the youth culture and in youth ministry. We just did a really quick pod- podcast this week from our university, and we interviewed students in youth ministries. And we asked them questions. We put it on our socials. And they were, you know, we, we kind of messed with the students a little bit. Like, how long was Noah in the belly of the whale? <laughs> right? And I'm sure some of our listeners will catch that. It wasn't Noah, right? And students are like, oh, oh, yeah. Uh, I remember that story. Um, six years, you know, or no, 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 no. It was three years, you know. <laughs> and all kinds of questions like that. It's not that we've just heard this research, Stan. I've seen it. In, in, in my travels. And so that's really the impetus behind writing the book. Jeff, one of the things that uh, you talk about in the introduction of your book, you talk about uh, part of the problem is that we're doing youth ministry in a Nickelodeon way while our teenagers are living in a stranger things world. So kind of unpack that a little bit for us. I'm just going to generalize youth ministry. Okay. And maybe the family also, I want to generalize it because it's not everybody, but it's the majority. We would rather do Gaga Ball and Nine Square and have pizza parties in youth ministry and entertain kids 
instead of doing the hard work of theology and faith conversations. What's really happening in this, and man, I, I wish we could take snapshots of what I see on the road weekly. But what's happening is, I think the church treats teenagers about two years and three years younger than they really are. We're cautious, we're careful, we're treating them with kid gloves, as we used to say. And that kind of treatment is not the way they are treated in the world. And it's not like the church isn't the world. I mean, I, I know the whole secular conversation, but secular sacred conversation talked about this with a, a lot of educators. When I share this concept, educators will come up to me after a session with youth leaders and educators in the room, or um, and they'll say, man, you, I've been saying this for years, right? Education treats teenagers two years, sometimes three years older than they actually are. Think about it this way, Stan. The expectations in a youth ministry when kids show up is let's have fun. Let's, let's entertain them. Let's make sure they come back next week. It's attractional. When you go to the school system, walk into the school in, in a middle school and sit in the classroom, and you're going to hear terminology, language that you and I don't even don't even hear. And they're expected to sit there, to listen, to, to work in study groups, to turn their assignments in on time, to do the work online, to, to respect each other in the classroom. Now, I, I know I'm not uh, defining every classroom in America, but when you look at the setting in the church and the setting in a classroom, the church is attractional and the classroom setting in our in our schools is much more instructional. And that's got to change. And that's why I wrote the book. Jeff, I'm curious. I, I've heard for a number of years that America is heading towards being a post-Christian nation. Now, I've heard in some people in more recent years say that we are a post-Christian nation. So I, I first of all, I'd love to hear your your opinion on that. Are we still heading that way? Or would you say, no, we have arrived? No, we've, we're there. I'm telling you, youth leaders tell me uh, this all the time, that what has happened in the church, it, especially small groups, is, hey, let's just get together and, and chat. And rarely do we talk about the scriptures and, and allow students to ask questions. If anything, it's, it's 80% of a leader talking and there's no conversation. And so what that has born is this lack of theology that now shows as, let's just say, the last 20 years. So educators today in society, um, people in government, leaders in government, people in the private sector, influencers on social media who grew up in, in a church that didn't have theology now have been living a secular secularized faith and they look first at their faith through the context of the world not through the context of the word or like i like to say in the book culture not scripture and so that's what i mean by secularization i i think we are so secularized in the church that you can't even recognize um the the, the preaching of the word today it's become so fancy right? It's become so attractional. It's become what I like to call theater versus theology. And so that's what our, that's what the last 20 years has been in youth ministry. And so all of those kids that grew up that were teenagers who are now millennials and running society, <laughs> think about that. All of those kids, teenagers grew up 
in a secularized youth ministry the last 20 years. This has been going on for 20 years. So the only way it changes, and I know I know we can blame the youth ministry a lot. Listen, the problem is the family, right? The family raised these kids who are now running society. I get that. But youth ministry has to look at their responsibility too. Jeff, uh, you've been in youth ministry for many, many years, and uh, you write about that youth need both to know what to do, but also how to do it. You talk about principles and practices. Yeah, how do those two play off each other? Why are they both important within the reality of youth ministry to, to really get our youth where, where we want to see them be? I, I like to use the phrase that we need practices that protect our principles. Okay. I don't think most of us wake up in the morning and say, I want to mess my life up. But what ends up happening is that because we don't have practices to protect the principles that we that we hold uh, near and dear to our heart. For example, I don't think a teenager you know, wakes up on a Friday and says, man, I'm just going to. I'm going to I'm going to mess my life up and tonight I'm going to a party after the football game or after the basketball game. What happens is we don't have practices that protect the thing the principles that we really believe in. For example, if I believe in what I just said that I don't want to mess my life up, then what am I doing to build my life, to shape my life, to uh, spiritual formation in my discipleship, however whatever we want to call it. What am I doing? Am I setting up prayer time? reading time, fasting time. If we don't have those kind of disciplines, then our life will end up fulfilling whatever that day puts in front of me. So that's what we. That's why the, the book talks about having principles is one thing, but we have to have practices that protect those principles. And those practices are each, each chapter in the book is a, is a practice. It is a principle, but w- what we do is we end every chapter with a outline for a small group Bible study in your home, on your own with your friends, or in youth groups. So what we're wanting to do is to get this book out like as a graduation gift so that kids will have this this book. They can read on prayer. They can read on giving. They can read on, you know, generous. They can read on administration, like how to organize my life as a teenager, my, my backpack and my bedroom. How do I organize that, Right. And then at the end of each of those chapters, we give the practical way to do that. Jeff, we were just talking a few moments ago about uh, you know basically spiritual disciplines for youth growing up, right? So how do we kind of help our youth navigate so that practices, those disciplines, don't become just kind of something they do to check a box, that they become and remain life-giving components to their journey of faith? Yeah, and that's the hard work when you realize, okay, uh, as an athlete, if I don't hit the weight room, then there's no championship, If right? If I'm not on the track, if for some reason my disciplines are are not set in me, then I'm not going to get my dreams. So an athlete understands that, you know, the the, the powerful stories of athletes over the years and their work ethic. Let's take it to a soldier, right? Someone in the military. They go to basic training first. And by doing the hard things, then the, you know, they're assured that when they get into battle or maybe they're not in battle, they're in the office, but they understand now authority and they understand that that kind of discipline that it takes to become a good soldier. There's so many illustrations like that. Farmers, 
right? A farmer counts the cost and early in the spring is taking care of the field so that the yield happens in the fall, you know? So all of those illustrations shape the spiritual formation of teenagers. So what we have to do is to make the hard work as easy as possible. That's why at the end of each book, it's that practical, uh, like every chapter, I, I do almost almost the first half of each chapter, Stan, is the theoretical part, the theological part of that discipline. And the rest of the chapter is that um, practical part, how to do that. Because we can't just tell kids they have to pray. We have to tell kids how to pray. They already know they have to, right? We've been telling that telling them that for a long time. Right. Oh, we have to show them how. And that's what mentors do. That's what leaders do. So how do you make the hard work easier? It's not ever going to be easy, right? It's not ever going to be easy to discipline myself to become a giver, but it can be easier, easier. And that's why you go to the practice, that earlier question, the practical things can make those spiritual things much easier. Jeff, I'd love to hear about uh, the discipline of repentance. I think most of our listeners, especially those who've kind of walked with Jesus for a bit, I mean, they know about you know prayer and scripture and solitude and, and silence and you know some of those classic ones that, that probably most people would not list uh, repentance as w- one of the core disciplines that they think about and have integrated in their lives. I feel like when we talk about spiritual discipline, the scriptures are filled with repentance. If you look at the history of revival in America, th- there isn't a there isn't a revival that happened in America since the first great awakening. And there've been about six since then, noted ones, six that would, that, not regional, but that would have been national, right? If you look at those six revivals, none of them began without repentance, brokenness. And so to me, when it says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. So the spiritual journey for me begins not with forgiveness, but with repentance. And so in the book, I talk about how we don't even call sin, sin anymore. It's my struggle, (laughs) right? It's my weakness. We don't even like to call sin, sin. So we have names for it. We, we call it alcoholism. Give your sin that name. And we, we've lost that, that missing the mark, right? Hamartia is that Greek word, uh, which just means I'm shooting an arrow at a bullseye and I missed it. So the bullseye is this is how I'm supposed to live in the scriptures, right? The scriptures would be the bullseye, the Ten Commandments, the Sermon on the Mount, and I miss that. So what do I do? I have to begin with repentance. So I start with, with, with the basic idea that my day, every day, that's the first chapter, daily repentance. In the morning, middle of the day, as I lay my head down at night, God, forgive me. God, forgive me for, the, so I, I like to call them sins of omission and sins of commission. Forgive me for the things that I committed and the things that I omitted, things I didn't do and I should have done. So that, to me, puts us on a clear path of spiritual maturity that we would be able to uh, live repentance on a daily basis. Jeff, we've given uh, parents and students and youth workers a lot to think about this morning, but uh, I guess give a word of encouragement before we uh, let you go here this morning to parents 
About 2.5 million teenagers are in our youth groups every week, and they are defying the statistic. I'm watching youth ministries value theology and not just theater. I'm watching youth ministries get back to the scriptures and not just culture. I would love for us to see a complete switch in youth ministry, going back to a classic theological discipleship model and not the attractional model. I, I see it in the Asbury Revival and Baylor, repentance rallies and prayer rallies out on commons areas in our universities. And, you know, to see uh, noontime prayer meetings breaking out all over cities now in America again, which is how the First Great Awakening started. To encourage you, I really believe that what we are seeing is what we have prayed for. Now it's just going to take a discipline, a spiritual discipline to water the seeds of revival. What happened after the first and second great awakenings was we built universities. They were our Ivy League schools. We built Princeton, Yale, and Harvard. We built all of these Ivy League schools to train the hundreds of thousands and several million of young people who were being born again in those meetings. The chapel was at the center of these schools. Then we started building universities where the library was at the center of these schools. And now, today, we build universities where the gym and the football stadium is at the center. It's the, big, it's the most important. So we moved from the chapel to the library to the gym. Think about that. From the heart to the mind to the body. And so what we have to do is to get back to the education and the instruction and the discipleship in this nation that started 200 years ago with the first and second great awakenings. And I think then we'll see transformation in society again. Well, Jeff, this has been an absolutely amazing, rich time with you this morning. You have given us a lot to think about, and your book is going to be a wonderful resource for youth leaders and parents. Thanks so much for spending the morning with us today. Thank you for this opportunity to get it out there.